Preston Rossello has been part of the SBC family for years and started his ministry career here, first as our college pastor and then becoming the campus pastor of our thriving venue congregation in 2013. Preston's gift for humor has been a highlight of many SBC videos and Winter Wonder performances. As a pastor, his heart is to see people experience restoration and transformation through God's grace. Please join us in welcoming our venue campus pastor, Rustin Rosella. Well, it is a blessing to be here. Uh, welcome to our Cactus Chapel and Venue communities as you join us now via video. And for all these watching online, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to have you here. Neil and I got a text, even last service, it was a pilot who attends here who said, hey, I, I'm still on uh, Phoenix time, but I'm in Tokyo. So I'm 5,700 miles away, but I'm worshiping with you this morning. And so it's such a blessing to hear about the reach and, and the favor that our church has had. And so it's good to be here together as a family. What a summer we've had. I don't know about you guys, but I've been so blessed just hearing each and every one of these speakers bring their heart. So it's an honor uh, to be here as a family to kind of wrap things up over these next two weeks. Uh, Jamie had one thing that he said before he left for his uh, time away this summer. He said, Rustin, if that thing is still on your face, <laughs> which I thought was an aggressive way to refer to my facial hair, but he said, if that thing is still on your face, you have to preach in a Spanish accent, <laughs> which I told him was totally nuts. <laughs> so I'm not gonna do that. Uh, we're going to move on from that quickly, but for the next two weeks, we're going to talk about, really, I mean, it's my favorite thing to talk about in ministry, and these are, this is my favorite passage of scripture. So I'm going to work through Luke 8, 40 through 56 over a two-week period, and restoration's my heartbeat. Anybody who spent any time around me teaching or, or just me in general in, in a pastoral care uh, environment, this is what I love to do. This is why I got into ministry, because restoration's real, and really, it's the heartbeat of the gospel. And so as we, we talked through this, I thought, but, but that's a lot. Restoration's kind of a big term, and what does it mean? How does it function? We all experience it in different ways. And so I was walking past my fridge this week, and I went, there, that picture, that's it. This is how restoration functions. So you can kind of turn your attention to your screens, but this is a good picture of how restoration functions. This is my kids. This is Marley, my daughter, and McCoy, my son. And he's 11 months old, and this is his first Christmas on uh, kind of Santa's lap. Somebody said last hour, this guy's kind of has a Steve Erickson look to him. <laughs> Which those of you who, Steve will hate that I said that, but we'll, we'll do it anyway. And so McCoy's sitting here, it's his first Christmas, he's 11 months old, and he's sort of like, he's out on Christmas. He didn't really like this whole thing. He's, he's scared and he's just screaming. His sister's unaffected, which is pretty normal. And so she's sitting here doing this, and I thought, man, isn't that exactly how restoration is? You know, we go through restoration, God starts something, and we're just like, we're out. It is crazy, and we're going, Lord, I don't like this at all. And yet, we get a year in, and we're not liking it anymore than when it started. <laughs> all right, he's 12 months further down the road at this point, and you can tell, like, he's more aware. He kind of saw this one coming from the lineup and the white-haired guy, and he's going, man, and this is it. We're just going, man, I just don't like this anymore than I did a year ago, Lord. And so, you know, but then we get three years in, and we're not really sure about this, are we? This is that like goofy smile phase where all the kids sort of go like, smile, and they're like, my job's to show you my teeth, so this is how it looks. And so, but restoration's like that too, isn't it? We start walking through something with the Lord and all of a sudden we go, I'm not really having any more fun, but I, I'm kind of aware of what's going on. 
And in all seriousness, restoration's not the easiest part of the Christian life. In fact, I'd argue it's the hardest. It's the process where Christ comes alongside us and starts going, even your most broken places, I'm gonna continue to work to make you look more like me. And that's hard because he's better than us. And in order for us to move to where he is and to where he longs for us to be in life, we have to submit our will and everything we have to follow down a road that sometimes is really difficult. And so to do that, we're gonna look at these 16 verses and, and the first eight are here and I'm gonna read them for us now if you'll turn your attentions to the screens. It goes like this, it says, and as Jesus returned, the people welcomed him for they had all been waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus and he was an official of the synagogue and he fell at Jesus' feet and began to implore him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter about 12 years old and she was dying. But as he went, the crowds were pressing against him. And a woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years and could not be healed by anyone came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak and immediately her hemorrhage stopped. And Jesus said, who is the one who touched me? And while they were all denying it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone did touch me, for I was aware that power had gone out of me. When the woman saw that she had not escaped notice, she came trembling and fell before him and declared in the presence of all the people the reason why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Now, this is a 2,000-year-old story. And so for us to really contextualize a 2,000-year-old story, we have to be able to import some cultural details so we know what's going on. And I'll submit to you today, I think this story has so much to teach us about the thorough nature of how God restores us, about how he cares for us, and how he longs to take us beyond what we expect. So if you look at this, we see that right off the bat, Jesus is returning from somewhere. He's coming back. And what he's coming back from, we see in Luke 8, 26 through 39, it's this place called Decapolis. And Decapolis, Deca, was a collection of 10 Roman cities that were sort of no-nos for most Jews. They were no-nos because they were heavily sinful places. A lot of things happened in Decapolis that you just would not go and you would not be a part of. Because for the typical Jew, being around those things rendered them unclean. And that, that term is gonna be really important for us today because unclean has a very specific meaning. It means for a Jew to be around certain things, they were rendered ceremonially unclean. They couldn't worship if they had been around certain things. And there were three major categories for being unclean. One of them was this, it was the bleeding, the second was the leprous, and the last was the dead. You just, you didn't, you weren't one and you didn't wanna touch one because that meant you were unclean and you couldn't go and basically go to church like we're all doing today. And so when we look at this story, we've gotta remember these categories exist because they're gonna play a big part in our understanding of what's going on. Our story's got three main characters. The first one is this Jairus guy who we read is a ruler of the synagogue. It means he's a Pharisee. He's got kind of an important status in culture. If you were to see Jairus walking down the street, you'd have gone, all right, oh man, there's Jairus. Hey man, he's sort of a, a big deal. He probably would have been wealthy. And Capernaum was a big hub for the Jewish faith. So what we have in Jairus is we have an important person from an important place. And yet we've got this hemorrhaging woman. She shows up 
and, and really we don't know much about her other than what's going on, but just, and don't shoot the messenger here, ladies, but based on the fact that she was a woman in the first century, she already held a lesser status than Jairus, who was a man. Okay, we don't know anything about her, but we do know that she's hemorrhaging, which renders her unclean based on those three categories that I already gave you. She falls in to one of those. So she's, she is religiously and socially an outcast. The point being, if in Jairus we have an important person from an important place, in this woman we have uh, an unimportant person who has no place. And then lastly, we've got Jesus, and there's all kinds of contrast in him, isn't there? Because the typical religious leaders of the day were doing ministry in a very specific place in a very specific way. They were all behind the doors of the synagogue and the temple. You see, what that did is that meant unclean people couldn't get to him. Because if, if they were back there doing ministry, you couldn't get into the temple if you were unclean, which meant no one could touch them and make them unclean. And yet Jesus is out doing ministry in the mess with his kids who need him most. Remember, he came and he said, the well don't need a doctor, the sick do. So that's where he spends time. So our story is just fraught with contrast. And as we pick it up and start to get into the narrative itself, what we see is that Jairus comes and this important person from this important place has a moment on the Capernaum shores. He comes and he just falls at the feet of Jesus. Now, Jairus is a Pharisee as part of the Jewish religion. Remind me, church, were the Pharisees big fans of Jesus? No, they weren't. In fact, they spent most of their time trying to trap him into a biblical snare that he couldn't get out of. And when that finally failed over and over and over again, they finally went, if we can't trap him, let's kill him. And that was what they attempted to do. So when one of their own comes and falls, doesn't just fall at the feet of Jesus in a, in a clearly submissive place to his authority, but when he actually makes a request and implores him to come with him to his house, Make no mistake, church, when Jairus fell and his knees hit the sand, he was in a place of utter desperation and he left everything behind. His buddies, his colleagues, his religion would never take him back once he had gone to their perceived sworn enemy. I need to connect you with this character because we're gonna pick him up again next week, but he's doing something really special with the Lord. And this is what he's doing. He's coming in and he's falling at his feet and starting something. What Jairus starts is a restoration story with Christ. And some of you are in Jairus's position and I intend to show you that right now. You see, when we start walking with Jesus, most of us come into a relationship with Jesus, we're typically not on a winning streak, right? A lot of us come desperate to Christ. And if, if we don't come initially desperate, we start to learn that we're desperate over time. Jairus is doing that, except when Jairus has picked up sandy knees and all and starts walking with Jesus, I need you to see their relationship starts before anything is fixed. You see, when Jairus starts walking with Jesus, his anxiety is no better about his daughter who's dying. His daughter's not healed, and his poor wife who is sitting at home hoping this journey goes well is still just as concerned for their sick child as she was when they started. Nothing is fixed, and yet something has begun. Some of you are in that place today. Some of you are in a place where you've started a journey with Jesus, and yet you're looking around, and your life is the same dumpster fire it was when your relationship with him started. I'm just gonna tell you, if there's one thing Jairus' story shows us, it's we've gotta be patient, because Jesus restores on his timeline, not ours. And I need you to hear that today, that don't lose hope, 
In fact, if this story teaches us anything, it's that hope has to remain in order for us to walk forward. Uh, we see kind of as we're moving that it's interruption after interruption for Jairus. Uh, the text tells us, but as he went, the crowds were pressing against him. Now, this is not a normal word for pressing. This word for pressing in the Greek means to choke out or to oppress. In fact, it's a word that was used in vineyards when they talked about pressing the grapes. That's not a pleasant pressing, is it? It's vigorous enough to squeeze the juice out of them to make wine. I think about it sometimes like it's not really like that you just brushed up against somebody in a department store. It's like last chance. <laughs> I hear the laugh. Some of you have been to the basement. You know what goes on down there, all right? But for those of you who haven't, let's try this on for size. Has anybody ever watched five-year-old soccer? Okay, you know how this goes then, don't you? I mean, the, the coaches come out ahead of time, they get all their players on there, and they spread everybody out. And then as soon as the ref blows the whistle, it's like, wham. All of the players are in one huddle in the middle of the field, and they're just moving around, kicking each other in the shins. <laughs> My mom used to call it herd ball. And then every once in a while, the ball will squirt out, the herd moves over to the ball again, and keeps doing it. It's like one goal gets scored in an hour, and nobody knows who scored it. Like the poor statisticians, like, I don't know. I mean, who kicked it last? It was just, that's kind of what it's like. And I imagine that this is what it's like in Jesus' day. He's walking along, and he's the soccer ball in the middle of this herd of people who are just waiting for the influencer, the hope giver, to do his next miraculous thing, but they are pressing against him. Now again, let's go back to our main character, Jairus. If your daughter's at home, sick and dying, what must you be thinking? for all these people who've become an interruption to the, the man who you're so desperate to have back at your house. Again, Jairus is sitting there and he's learning, you know what, this is more than I can really handle. All I got is Jesus, but he doesn't seem to be in a hurry. And all these people are in the way. I just want you to see that even in the midst of these interruptions, Jairus is learning from Jesus. All he can do is walk with him. All he can do is move forward one step at a time, and kind of come to a place where he goes, okay, Jesus, what next, what next? And unfortunately, that's where we leave Jairus for right now. This is one of the great cliffhangers in my preaching career. So just kind of hang out here because you won't pick him up again until next week. We leave him right there because the greatest of interruptions is about to take place as in verse 43, our hemorrhaging woman walks in. It says this, it says, and a woman with, who had had a hemorrhage for 12 years and could not be healed by anyone came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak and was immediately healed. And immediately her hemorrhage stops. Now, what I want you to see here is kind of an interesting detail. Jairus' daughter is how old? 12. This woman has been hemorrhaging for how long? 12 years. So again, as long as Jairus and his wife have been caring for this daughter, this woman over here has been suffering with this debilitating condition. And I wanna kind of import you into now what she's been dealing with because I know some of you have been in the situation in your life where you've experienced this painful thing. You have something that's going on medically and nobody's got an answer. And all of you would say the same thing. It was terrifying. This woman doesn't have an answer. She's just hemorrhaging. And we'll talk about it in a second, but she's tried everything. But a hemorrhage like this in the first century would have just depleted her. All right, she would have been sitting there going, okay, I'm bleeding every day. As her body is feverishly working to try and keep up and make more blood, she's sitting there going, I'm exhausted. 
She has no physical energy at all because she's continually wiped out from this condition. She can't hold a job. She can't work and do physical labor in the marketplace. She can't do any of those things. In addition to that, she lives with the ongoing fear of the fact that this condition will likely be what takes her life. This will be the fatal turn that at some point she won't be able to go on anymore. But church, I will tell you that she would have taken all of that every day if it had not been for the social and relational uh, effects of her condition. You see, for this woman, she was deemed unclean. So how many of you enjoy the fact that you can sit in church today? Because for 12 years of her life, she could not. She was not allowed in church for her, would have been a synagogue or a temple, and she can't do that. She has no way to get in, and it's been over a decade of, I can't go there. And in addition to that, she was deemed unclean and couldn't touch others. So I know for some of you, physical affection is not your love language. You've got like a bubble the size of this room and you wish everyone would stay out of it, okay? But for those of you that that is your love language, can you imagine going over a decade and not being able to touch anyone because it would render them unclean as well? You see, this woman has nothing. She can't do anything and she's been rendered an outcast. In addition to that, a passage in Mark, which is our parallel passage right here, it says this, Mark 5, 26. She had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse. Now, that's an interesting statement to me because you know, first century medicine doesn't seem like kind of the hippest place to be. So I went and I researched what this woman had potentially done as some of her kind of restoration medically. So buckle up, this is pretty dumb, just to be honest, all right? So here we go. First thing that would have been recommended for her was drinking a goblet of wine containing a powder compounded from rubber, alum, and garden crocuses. I've not seen that on the menu at Whole Foods, have you guys? Like that's not something I'm digging into on a regular basis. Next, we've got a dose of Persian onions cooked in wine and ministered with the summons arise out of your blood flow, okay? All, every Pentecostal just went, let's get back to that. Let's do some more screaming. Let's get that going, okay? How about this? Sudden shock. They're not hooking people up to car batteries, okay? So what they mean by this is likely they would hire someone to follow them around and then kind of come to this place in town where it's like, ha! And she's like, nope, still bleeding, right? It didn't work. Okay, lastly, carrying around the ash of an ostrich egg in a certain cloth. Like, guys, these are the things that people are going, you got a hemorrhage. Did you try the garden crocus thing? That didn't work? Anybody shouted at you? Anyone, have you been scared lately? What about the egg? You got the egg? Show me your purse. Like, this is the stuff that's going on for this poor woman who has endured much at the hands of physicians, and she's only gotten worse. Now, in all seriousness, here's what I need you to see. I had a good friend who had a severely sick child when they were born. And this, this condition that they had, it was just, it was horrific. And they were constantly experiencing this ongoing like hope and devastation. And I was on the email list. And so what would happen is we'd get an email and it would be like, listen, we're getting Caleb to a specialist in Cincinnati. And we'd go, okay, we're praying, let's pray. God's gonna show up, let's do this, we're doing it. And, and it would be like, they'd come back and go, no diagnosis. Nothing has changed, everything's the same. It's hope followed by devastation. 
Oh, there's a children's hospital in Virginia. Uh, there's a, a specialist up in Seattle. They, they crossed the country and otherwise to try and find a solution or even a diagnosis of what could help their poor son. Hope and devastation, hope and devastation. What I need you to connect to in our story today is that this woman has done the first century version of spending all that she had to try and accomplish something to help give relief. And she's found it nowhere. And we kind of come to these last four verses and start to bring our story to a point today. We see that Jesus rolls in in the midst of this and he is her last hope. She comes in and this is what we read. After she's touched him, Jesus does something kind of, we've got to ask the question, why does he do this? And Jesus said, who is the one who touched me? And while they were all denying it, Peter said, master, the people are crowding and pressing in on you. Does that not just seem like Peter? Like what a wonderful moment. Hey, um, Jesus, the sky's blue. Peter, thank you so much for that. We'll move along now. Okay. Hey, everyone's crowding around you. Yeah, we got that. Thanks. But Jesus said, someone did touch me for I was aware that power had gone out of me. Jesus was aware that something had transpired between him and someone else. And when the woman saw that she couldn't escape notice, she came trembling and fell down before him and declared in the presence of all the people the reason why she'd touched him and how she'd been immediately healed. I need you to see that Jesus stops everything and there's something really miraculous that happens. But a miracle has already occurred. I'm gonna submit to you something that I read in a commentary years ago completely changed my perspective on this passage. But first I need you to see, this woman came just as desperate for Jesus as Jairus did. You see, she's leaving it all behind because culturally, she would not have touched a man, much less touched anyone in her condition. For her to touch a Jewish man was unheard of. She just wouldn't have done it, but she does. And the second she does, we get this. We get a physical healing. There is all of a sudden an immediate change in her condition. She sits there and goes, bang. All of a sudden, she got what she thought she needed. Her condition was relieved. Now, last night, I preached this message. And for people who've been to Jerusalem, this is kind of a game-changing message for them because they've been to a lot of these places. So she said, I was in a place called Magdala in Jerusalem, and this gigantic painting was on the wall. So I, I had this imported into my slides for today. Um, so you got something Saturday night didn't, so hang on to that, all right? This is a feminine hand reaching in to touch Jesus' robe. This is the moment where a miracle transpires. It's this woman's hand in the midst of a crowd. Remember, pressing in on him. There's no room for anything. And you get this reaching in and you can see that sweet little spark right there as where power is leaving him. She said, this is beautiful. You can see this is one of those columns that has the velvet ropes right there. And she said, Rustin, if you were to actually see this painting, what you would see is the fact that Jesus' foot is about as big as you. This thing takes up an entire room. But this is the moment where something amazing occurs and she's immediately healed. But what I wanna show you today is the fact that there's, there's more than just a physical healing. Jesus stops this woman as she comes back. We see something incredible. But, but you gotta ask, why does Jesus call her back? This seems like something that the Pharisees would do. This seems like something that someone would do to bring her back and to shame her, which we know is not Jesus' game. You see, when he calls her back, something interesting happens. We see that she now tells the entire crowd the reason she touched him and how she'd been immediately healed. You see, Jesus calls her back knowing what's happened. He knows the power's gone out of him, and he's not getting ready to do what she expected, which was this, a shaming from a Pharisee. 
This is how a Jew would treat me in the midst of this because they have categories and I just shattered them. But Jesus brings her back and goes, what happened? And this poor woman sits there and we know that she's trembling. She's terrified because of what's about to transpire. And Jesus just goes, yeah, tell me your story. Give me your testimony. And she goes, yeah, no, I was, I was bleeding and it's been going on for 12 years. It's been so horrific. And, and, and now I'm standing here before you, but I'm standing here before you healed. And Jesus just simply looks at her and says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. The one who heals, the people are waiting for, the hero, the hope giver, the influencer is standing in front of all the people. It clarifies that. She tells in front of all the people what just happened. When he declares her well, the hero and the hope giver just said, hey, listen, you just get your social and relational life back. Yeah, you don't have to be unclean anymore. I'm declaring you made well in front of all these people. He's restoring her socially because he said it is finished. That's unbelievable. This was not wasted time. This was not just a clarification. Hey, power left me, just wanna know where it went. Uh-uh. It's you get all those things back because I've said you're well. And the third healing is the most powerful. It's this, in the third place, we get a spiritual healing, a spiritual and eternal one, because the language is just beautiful here. Jesus looks at this woman and says, daughter. This is the only time in the New Testament where Jesus refers to a woman as daughter. This is an incredible moment because there's this familial context to what he's about to do. And when he says, your faith has made you well, he uses the word sozo. Just so you know, every time you see the word saved in the Bible, it's the word sozo. So he looks at her and try this on for size, church. Your faith has made you saved. Does that sound familiar to how we articulate salvation today? We're saved what? By grace through faith. So when this woman left everything behind, desperate to come to Christ, she reaches out, touches the, the robe, and Jesus goes, yeah, I know, you just left, right? You, you left. You see, she, he had to call her back. What does that mean? She ran. This is where I'm gonna apply this potentially uncomfortably to all of our lives, mine included. I think there's a lot of times where we come to Jesus, we get what we think we need, and we run. You see, we leave. And what I wanna submit to you today is this. This woman got relief, and yet Jesus wanted to take her further. There was more that needed to be done, and he calls her back into his presence. Church, I need you to see this today. I need you to see that relief can often be the biggest thief of restoration. You see, you may be like this woman. You may be in a place like I've been so many times in my life where I came to the Lord and I was, I just need this problem fixed. And he fixes it and it gets better and I'm like, cool, thanks, I'm out. And like Jesus has got me by the scruff of the neck, just pulling me back in going, son, I'm not done, I'm not done. I have higher hopes for your life than you do. You see, you're kind of sitting there going, um, I just needed that problem fixed. I just need me and my wife to stop arguing. Can we sort of move on from there? And he goes, no, no, no. I, I want everything for you. Jesus doesn't do C minus. Amen, church? What Jesus does is he does A plus work in our lives. And this is the part where it gets sticky because people go, oh, here we go. This is the prosperity part. No, it's not. This is what it means to serve an infinite being. This is what it means to serve a good, good father. These are all the things that we sing so proud on a Sunday morning, but it's taking them further. We hope into him, and we hope with his hope, not our hope. You see, my, my wife and I were having a conversation the other day, and we started to see, oh my gosh, 
we have just like, we've kind of, we've done this wrong. Uh, we were talking and I, I started to talk through some things. I said, babe, um, are we doing great right now? She goes, well, I wouldn't say we're doing great, but I also, I mean, nothing's wrong. And I went, man, that's a problem, right? We started to talk and as we started to talk and she gave me permission to share this, we started to talk through the fact that like we're asking the wrong questions. You see, we're asking the questions in our marriage that are this. They're saying, okay, um, how do we get back to just par? How do we get back to par? How do we get back to things that are just kind of okay? Like, I just wanna make sure nothing's wrong, but we're not asking any of the questions that say, how do we have a great marriage? So we realized if we wanna have a great marriage, if we wanna have everything that God's got for us, we have to start asking the type of questions that point us in that direction. We can't ask questions about, is anything wrong? We gotta ask questions about how do we get to great? Because I want John 10, 10 for my marriage. I want abundance. And just on that marriage side note, I'll tell you this. God did not put you in your marriage to stay the same. God put you in your marriage to change. The biggest misnomer, and I see this more in my generation than I do anywhere else, but I think it applies beyond that, is that people are getting into marriages and they're standing there at the altar, and I said this last week when I preached in the venue, but I sat there at 25, I was such an idiot when I got married, I really did think my wife was gonna follow me around and just tell me I was awesome for the next 40 years. <laughs> I told the venue last week, like, that ship sunk before we got out of the harbor. Like, doesn't, not how it works. But what we've noticed is that, like, God is doing something sweet. I, I, I counsel guys this way all the time. Listen, God is instructing you to go find one of his daughters to love. And I think in some way, God's not even all that concerned about who we pick. Now, don't overapply that. But I think what God knows is whichever daughter you pick, I'm gonna craft you into what she needs, and I'm gonna craft her into what you need. Is anybody coming into marriage with that mentality in 2017? No. They're showing up and going, I think I'm awesome, and she's gonna tell me that. I, th I think I'm awesome, and he's gonna walk around and tell me that. That's not what marriage is. Marriage is sacrificial first and foremost. That's why it's used as a metaphor for Christ and his bride. It's because we've gotta sit back and go, okay, Lord, change me into what she needs. That's why when you see people on like a 40 or 50 year wedding anniversary, they look nothing like the two idiots who stood at the altar. <laughs> they don't, why? Because they've been crafted by God with his loving hands. They did not stop at relief. They pressed on to restoration and they said, change me into who she needs. And she said, change me into who he needs. Because nothing I have is so sacred that I wouldn't sacrifice it for them just like you sacrificed for us. You are our model and so we give that to each other. Do you know where marriage breaks down? It's when people look at each other and they say, I don't wanna change. And one person says, I don't wanna change. And the other person finally gives up hope. And then they come to me and they say, what? Oh, I fell out of love. No, both of you stopped wanting to change. That's why people get divorced. That's hard to hear, but that's what it is. And so in this reality of when we gotta ask bigger questions, we gotta have higher hopes. I was in a yoga class, which I'm embarrassed to say. <laughs> it was in a super hot yoga class, so it was like a 110 degree room, and this little statue that was leading the class said this, and I'll never forget it because I was on the verge of passing out. <laughs> but he looked at the whole room and he said, I think it was Michelangelo who said, our biggest problem is not that we hope too high and fail, but that we hope too low and succeed. Now, despite whatever he was crafting that out of and how close to death I was at that moment, <laughs> that's true of every Christian life, I think. I think so many times our biggest problem in the church is not that we sit there 
and we go, oh man, I just hoped too high and God didn't come through. Our biggest problem is that we've got hopes down here and we just keep bumping into them over and over again and going, he did it, and I don't wanna ask for more. You see, it's not material, it's not financial, ditch that. What about the emotions that you have that God longs to restore, right? What about the relationships that he goes, I will knit that together, but you have to be willing to change. What about those hidden areas in our lives? You guys know my background, what about addiction? The thing that you keep turning to, to try and help you get through the day that the Lord goes, I promise, if you put that down, I can be enough for you. I promise I can restore that. Or what about those little emotional areas and those spiritual strongholds where it's like, I'm just an angry person. Are you? God made an angry person? Well, that doesn't sound right, but it sounds like you've engaged in anger for so long that you have stopped making it something that you do. You've made it who you are. God didn't make an angry person. God made a child of his who he longs to restore from even the areas that they think are too big for him. Are you willing to let God into your scary places or are you so worried about performing for him that you sit back and say, I'm fine. Everything's fine over here. See church, I wanna be a part of a body of believers that says we want everything that God has for us and we're willing to extravagantly hope that he could restore even our scariest broken places. I wanna be a part of a body of believers that moves from relief into restoration. And in order to do that, we'll have to have faith that his plan is better for our lives than ours is. And that's what we'll talk about next week in these next eight verses. I always finish with this a lot. It's Philippians 1.6, and I put it up here on the screen so I could read it over you yet again. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. That's our hopeful cry, that God's not done with us yet. He's not finished with your life. I don't care how old you, you are, whether you're six or 60, he's still working. He still longs to restore things. I hope I never lose that hopeful tone no matter how old I get. He's still doing stuff in me. And really vibrant believers, you hear that in their voice, no matter how old they are. We're gonna go right now. I'm gonna pray real quick and then we're gonna dismiss our, our campuses and our multi-sites, our venues, to, to go and to spend some time at the communion table where we really celebrate the sacrifice of Christ. So let me do this. Let me just pray over our church and then we'll dismiss and go from there. So Lord, right now we come and we just come with the recognition that there is so much more that you long to do in our lives. Lord, I know for some of us, this is hard. Today can be a big U-turn. There can be some spots where you may have sat back and, and, and people have kind of pushed away from the restoration process. Uh, they may not be kind of hearing your voice anymore, which is longing to draw them into a kind of a deeper sense of what you could do. It's that you wanna give them abundance. And for us to have abundance, it means that we have more than we can use. That's something that's hard for us to wrap our heads around. And yet we long for abundance, Lord. We long for abundant emotional lives. We long for abundant relational lives, spiritual lives, Lord, even physical areas where you long to restore us. And sometimes what stands in the way is the fact that we're not hoping high enough. You say that we don't have because we don't ask. And Lord, I don't wanna to get to heaven someday and see a pile of things that you longed to give me, but I wasn't willing to stay in the ring with you for you to move me from relief into restoration. Lord, I cry that that would be the hunger of the church, 
that all of us would be hungry for the depths of your restoration, understanding that we wait upon you to do that. And yet, Lord, we continue to come to you and say, Lord, will you restore this? King, will you restore this? Lord, that's my prayer. My prayer is for one of courage over our church. The church, you would become courageous about how you pursue Christ. You become courageous about the request that you make. You would ask brothers and sisters to join you as we take those things on. Father, we give you our lives. We come to the table now to celebrate what it is that you've done, that you arose with our freedom in hand, and we wanna walk that freedom out over time. We say this in your name, amen.